My name is John Vogt. I am a member here at Christ Covenant, and I'm going to be reading out of Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. And actually, if y'all would stand up for the reading real quick. It's the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we've been running through this book for a while now. Uh, true confessions, I have never taught eight weeks on a book. And, uh, and we've talked about that before. Some folks, you know, they teach for like, 20 weeks on a book. Some people teach for like a year on a book. Um, and I know your attention span is awesome, but like it's hard. It's hard to sit through an entire book, especially the book of Revelation. If you were like 72 years old, I think you'd be like, tell me more when Jesus is coming. Right now you're like, Jesus can come, like, but a couple of more weeks would be good. Uh, and so like, it's good to see this though. It is good and right for us to look through an entire book. It is rare for people to go through an entire book, especially a complicated book. So I wanna just take you through where we've been in about 120 seconds using a Bible Project poster. If you've seen those, they're amazing. They're drawn out images of an entire book. So if we can pop that up, there we go. Now that you can see that from exactly where you're sitting, this is perfect. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to zoom in. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And revelation, anybody, we can do this. Anybody remember what the word revelation means? Wait. It does mean apocalypse. That is the word. It means apocalypse. And apocalypse means... Unveiling, yes, who said that for $5 right there? I can't see, oh, that's great. Heather will pay you, that's perfect. <laughs> that is perfect. Okay, so, so we get John, the old man. We think it's probably John. I think it's probably John, the apostle, the beloved one. Um, and he's gonna get this. He's gonna be in prison when he gets this. But let's just take a look. The first three chapters of the book are these messages to these seven churches. That's how it starts. The first chapter is the introduction. It says, this is the revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus. And you're like, I thought I already knew Jesus. Well, we're seeing the full picture of Jesus. We saw the suffering servant when he was on earth. Now we're seeing 
the king who reigns and who will reign forever. What we're seeing in the book of Revelation, this side of Jesus, is what many of the Jews thought they were going to get when he came the first time. That's why they kept saying, you're not Jesus, you're not Messiah, you're not Messiah. And the reason they said that was because they were reading the right verses in the Old Testament and applying them to the wrong coming of Jesus. They were applying the second coming of Jesus' verses to his first coming. And so John gets this vision of who Jesus is, and then he gets this letter to these seven real churches. And this letter, the word conqueror is written over and over and over again, and he warns every church, Jesus warns all the churches, to conquer, to conquer, to conquer. And that's our warning today at Christ's Covenant in Atlanta. That is our warning if we are followers of Christ that this is a battle and some won't cross the finish line. We need to be conquerors in the faith. And so then you get to the next couple of chapters, and this is the famous throne room of God. And for two chapters, we're, we're caught up in the throne room of God, and we see God on his throne. We see Jesus. We see these four living creatures, and these four living creatures are going to continue on through the rest of the book. And then as we go further, you're going to see like there's there's saints that have been killed, martyrs that are under the altar of God. So we're getting a glimpse into not just the throne room of God, but the temple of God, which is what Moses saw in Exodus. When he was up on Mount Sinai, Moses saw this heavenly vision of the temple of God. And so they made the tabernacle as a model of the temple of God. And then after that, we come over, and the next couple of chapters, we see these seven seals and this lamb that was slain but is alive. Jesus is the only one that can open this seal or this, this scroll. And the scroll has these seven seals that have to get popped off. And so we see things like war, famine, conquest, death. Uh, we see the, the martyr saying, how much longer? And he says, a little bit longer. And then there's the day of the Lord. And then Kevin Terrell just texted me. Um, that just popped up. I don't know if everybody could see that. Oh, okay, great. Um, and so Kevin's in the back with the awesome beard back there. I didn't read what you said, Kevin, but if you need me, just yell. Zoom in more. There we go. How's that? Okay. Yeah. So then the, we get the seventh seal and we get this, this census of God's servants and we see this messianic army and, and we get a clue. Do you see right here? The, this looks like the Monopoly man. Um, he, he, it, we, we see this in the book the whole time. Two things that happened to John throughout the whole book. So if you're reading this book later, this is a great thing for you to pay attention to as you're reading. John hears things in the book. He hears an angel speaking. He hears the Lord speaking. And then he turns and he sees and almost every time, in fact, every time I can think of here while I'm on the spot, every time I can think of what he sees is a little bit different than what he heard. And so there's a reason he hears one thing, but what he sees is always a more full picture of what he heard. And so we'll, we'll zoom away from Monopoly Man. We'll come down, and then we get to this next section. We have these seven trumpets that blow, and these seven trumpets are warnings. This is where we get the famous four horsemen. These seven trumpets are God starting to crack down on the earth. Think of the plagues of Egypt, and now he's putting plagues all over the world. And this is where some folks were like, I'm checking out. I don't want to think about that. That's a little bit scary. But the Lord sends plagues on people, and we're going to see this tonight. God sends plagues on people to get their attention. When the Israelites left Egypt, it wasn't just the Hebrew people. It wasn't just the Jews that left. 
It says they left with a mixed multitude, meaning that as God sent the plagues on Egypt, Egyptians began to recognize and acknowledge and worship God and follow him. And so when God puts a plague in your life, it's to get your attention. And many times people will turn and they'll repent. And so we get these seven trumpets. And then after the seven trumpets, we have seven signs. And that's what we looked at last week. We looked at these seven signs. This was all very intense. So we took one week off and went to the park to play. Then we came back. And we have these, these seven signs, these seven symbols. And we begin to see them. But this is the one I really want you to think about because this is the, really kind of the first woman we've seen in Revelation. See this lady right here? We see her and she gives birth to a son. And underneath her is this monster, this dragon that wants to devour her child. And so what we see is God chooses Abraham. He creates his people, his chosen people. Through his chosen people comes Mary. Mary brings forth the Son of God, her own, his only begotten Son. She gives birth to him. And what happens? Satan wants to kill this child. And Satan is unsuccessful in killing this child. And so what happens throughout the rest of history is Satan sets his sights on the people that the child calls his own. And he begins to wage war on the church, which is why it's terribly sad, but not unexpected. When you get a 400-page document that describes 700 accounts of sexual abuse, you think that is Satan attacking the church and the people of God. And he's doing a good job. And so this is the first time that we see really a picture of who Satan is. And this is where we get the mark of the beast. We get the 666 in this one. We see that there's going to be a world leader, the Antichrist. We see that he's going to have a cohort called the prophet. And those two are going to come and they're going to, they're going to help run the world. That prophet's going to be able to do miracles. Uh, and and it's, this, it's this incredible thing that's going to happen. And you could see that it could happen. Today was voting day. It wouldn't take much for the world to deteriorate to the point that we all come together under one currency, under one leader, under one rule, under one law. I was talking to a guy who works for Merrill Lynch last week, and he was like, yeah, the, the U.S. dollar is like the only thing that's holding that back if you really think about it from an economy standpoint. And I was like, I don't really want to think about that. And so it was on Wednesday after we had just taught, and I was like, let's think about something else for just a minute. Like Wednesday is like the debrief day, the download day. And, uh, and so anyway, I was like, okay, well, we'll think about something else now. Um, but tonight, what we're going to get into is seven more things. We're going to get into seven bowls tonight. Again, this is going to be the last set of plagues that God unleashes on the people. We're going to blow through these seven plagues. He's going to unleash these seven plagues on people. Um, they're going to look a lot like the Egyptian plagues. We're also going to see Armageddon. I don't know if you know about Armageddon. I'm not talking about the movie. I'm talking about, which wasn't that great, but Armageddon's at an actual place. We've been to Armageddon. It's called Har Megiddo. It's in Israel. It's a literal place. Has anybody been there? Anybody else been to Har Megiddo? Okay. 
I see that. A couple of hands. There we go. Um, <clears throat> so, Har Megiddo, it's a real place. It's where the end of the world battle will take place. And you say, well, Thomas, is this figurative or is it literal? Uh, I think that part is literal. I think a, a lot of the book is literal. I think that there's signs in there, and the signs point to real things. So even if there's figurative stuff in the book, it's pointing to a real thing. Joshua texted me yesterday, and we were, um, <coughs> excuse me, messaging back and forth, and he was saying that, you know, maybe part of the reason that some of this is so symbolic is because we can't even understand the gravity of what the literal things will be. And the literal things of God are always bigger than we can imagine them to be. And then what will happen is we will see, as we round out this book, we're going to see this thing called Babylon fall. We're going to see this final battle take place. And lastly, we're going to see a new heaven and a new earth. In two weeks, we're going to get to the place where the book comes to a close. And the Lord himself wipes away every tear from every eye. And all the conquerors in Christ are gathered around him. And the world will be made right. And there will be no more school shootings. And there will be no more division. And there will be no more fighting and fussing and sexual abuse. And all the little things that we call trouble and nuisance and chaos that really are sin. They'll all be gone once and for all. And the last line of the book, I'll go ahead and tell you because you could look at it anyway, is come Lord Jesus, come. And that's my hope as we land this plane, that your heart is stirred to the point where you say, come Lord Jesus, come. And you think about his coming in your every decision that you make. So that being said, let me pray for us and let's begin to blow through chapter 15, 16 and get to 17 really quick. Father, I thank you so much for this incredible book. This book that as you study it, you encourage the reader that this calls for wisdom. This calls for endurance. You call us to be conquerors. Lord, you promise that there is a blessing for those who read and hear the words of this prophecy. I thank you, Lord, that you're bringing us through this. I ask that you would speak to us tonight in a powerful way and let us see that a book of prophecy can be relevant for a day when it has not all yet come true. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's how we're going we're gonna to just really kind of just breeze through this bad boy. What happens in chapter 15, <coughs> excuse me, I had a COVID shot a couple of weeks ago and now I have a cough that I've never had in my life. And so, there, I said it out loud. I'll just leave that there. Uh, and so, anyway, chapter 15, what we have are these seven angels, and they're carrying seven plagues. And, uh, and these angels are going to be, if you look down in verse 6, out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, and they're clothed in pure white linen with golden sashes around their chest. We have not seen these angels yet, but these seven angels show up on the scene, and they are dressed to the nines, and they each have a bowl. Now, the only time we've seen bowls in this book have been where God collects the prayers of the saints. So these seven angels are carrying these seven bowls and they're going to pour them out on the earth one at a time. 
But what we see prior to that is this group of people gathered around the lamb, gathered around the throne. This is one of three times that in the book of Revelation, people are given harps. And so if you've ever wondered where the image comes from of like people in heaven, like playing a harp, well, it's right here. And so I can't promise you're going to get one, but maybe if you play your cards right. So look at verse three in chapter 15. And actually we'll go up just a little bit further in verse two. It says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, also those who had conquered the beast and its image, the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hand. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear the Lord and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All the nations will come to you and worship you. Your righteous acts have been revealed. And what we see in chapter 15, the one thing I really want to camp out on for just a second, is that in life, we only have two choices. Revelation 15 verses 3 and 4 shows us that in life, you really only have two choices. You will have the mark of Jesus, or you will have the mark of the beast. Everyone in the world, and we saw this last week, we've seen it before then, but it becomes more and more clear as the book goes on. Everybody in the world is, is either with Jesus or with Satan. There is no middle ground. There is no purgatory. There is no middle ground. There is no floating back and forth. It's one or the other. Every one of you right now is either marked by the lamb. You have been washed in the blood of Christ or you bear the mark of Satan. Neutrality does not exist. Jason talked about that in his sermon on Sunday and it's absolutely true. Neutrality does not exist. It is not in God's economy. You are with the lamb or you are not. And so as chapter 15 comes to a close, it's a very short chapter, we get to chapter 16. And this is where the seven bowls are going to be dumped out. And so these seven bowls, they are in order. Verse 2, the first angel is going to pour his bowl on the earth and people are going to have painful sores. These sores are unlike the Egyptian plagues. They don't just go away. These things are nagging. When I was in, uh, when I was in Arizona a month or so ago, well, two months ago, I guess, I, I hit this cactus and it was like, it was kind of stupid what we were doing. Jason and I, if, you, if you're familiar with Christ Covenant, um, Jason, our, our lead pastor, founding pastor, he and I were on this trail and we were going down this canyon and uh, we made our own way down the canyon. We did multiple rappels and whatnot and it was great. We thought we were real adventurers. Uh, and then I got done and I was like, man, I've got all these little like cactus things in me. One of them buried itself in like the web of my thumb and forefinger and it is like, I think forever in me. It like won't go away. So if you shake my hand and you're like, that guy's hands are gross, like it's a cactus. And I apologize, but like it won't go away. But, <clears throat> but these sores are not totally dissimilar except they're way worse. So <clears throat> the whole world, who, the, all the folks are going to have these sores that come up on them. The second angel, verse 3, is going to pour a bowl into the sea and everything in the sea is going to die. There's not going to be any more life in the ocean. Then the third angel in verse 4 is going to pour its bowl into the rivers and it's going to poison the rivers. And you see the sea and the rivers turn to blood. And so you've got boils, you've got blood. We're starting to look similar to the Egyptian plagues. And then 
One of the angels calls out in verse 5, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, who brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar. Yes, Lord. The Lord, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, the people at the altar are the martyrs. The martyrs are calling out, this is just what you're doing. The angel is calling out, this is just what you're doing. We need to remember, God is always good and he is always just. And the two don't contradict each other. So when he pours out these judgments, he is still good. And when he pours out these judgments, he is still just. You and I, we switch off all the time, right? We talked about this when we talked about the attributes of God last year. After like a 37-week relationship series, we, uh, we went into like something else. Um, <clears throat> and so we did talk about relationships forever last year. Uh, but when you, when you see God acting one way, he's also always his other parts. When you see me acting kind, like I'm not being mean then. But I can be mean and leave kind behind. God can never leave one attribute behind. He is always all of himself all the time. And so what we see is that God is bringing these plagues on people with goodness and justice. And then the fourth angel comes in verse 8. And this angel is given something to increase the heat of the sun. And so there's scorching heat on the earth. And then we finally get a response from the people. And in verse 9, it says, at the end of that little section there, it says, they did not repent and give glory to God. And so we know God's motives in his punishment is to wake people up. But they did not repent and give glory to God. And then a fifth angel, he pours out his his bowl on the throne of the beast. The kingdom is plunged to darkness. And what happens when, when the world goes dark? You can't grow things. And so the people are gnawing on their tongues. They, they literally don't, can't get food. And after that, it says they did not repent of their deeds. And then verse 12, the sixth angel comes in. This angel dries up a river. And at this point, all the armies of the world gather together. And they gather together for what? To fight God. And you say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, people don't do that. People wouldn't fight God. People have been fighting God for a long time. Now they're collectively going to fight against God. Whether they know it's God or not, that's what they're doing. When you think back to Genesis 11, you get the Tower of Babel. And what do people do at Babel? They build a tower, attempt to build a tower up to God in order that they might show that they are superior to him. People have been battling against God all through the ages. In fact, you see the words of Jesus, if you have a Bible that has red in it, you see the words of Jesus in that section when the sixth bowl is poured out. In verse 15, Jesus speaks up and says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled themselves at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon or Har Megiddo, which is the Mount of Slaughter. Now, this is a foreshadowing. We're going to see this play out a little bit more next week as we get into that battle. And then, 
The seventh angel pours out its bowl. It's the last one. And a voice comes from the temple. There's an earthquake that's never been had before, never will happen again. Jerusalem itself splits into pieces. This is a serious, serious earthquake. And at the end of it, it's God's last attempt to get people's attention. You would think someone would cry out and say, clearly God is not pleased with us. Even if there's hardly any Christians left for them to see as a witness, They've had an angel fly over and proclaim to the whole world, we saw this last week, the gospel of Jesus. You would think someone would wake up and say, let me just return to God. Let me come back to him. But instead, the chapter ends in a very sad way. It says in the last line of 21, and they cursed God. This is how this chapter ends. God tries to get their attention and get their attention and get their attention, and they cursed him. So in Revelation 16, 9, 11, and 21, we see the people's hearts hardening over and over and over again. And what we see is that God sends plagues to get our attention. And this is a good moment to pause and ask, has he sent any kind of plague into your life? Because he still does this. These are things that have not yet happened. So we know he's in the business of this. Has he sent some sort of dry spell into your life? Does it feel like the heat is unnecessarily high in your life? Does it feel like you just keep hitting dead ends over and over again? Is there something where you just need to call out and just say, God, is this you or is this just because I live in a broken world? And it could be because you live in a broken world and we're surrounded by people that are sinful. But it can also be at times that God is sending something into your life or into my life to wake us up. And then finally, we're introduced to another woman in this book. There's three women in the book of Revelation. There's the one we saw in Revelation 12, the one who gives birth to the son. And then, and that that woman is representative of the Jews, God's people, Mary who gives birth, and then it's going to encompass all of us who are brought in as God's people. This woman, up until not too many years ago, uh, ago, was not known as the harlot. She was known as the whore of Babylon. There's all kinds of ancient artwork about this woman, the whore of Babylon. But we want to see the harlot And we want to see what her methods are. So I'll read again to you what John read. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. She's seated on these many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away into the spirit, and the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had heads, seven heads, and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk 
And she was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Let me just give you a, a line here. This harlot makes slaves of those she allures. And how does she allure them? She allures them through sexual liberty. Jesus sets us free with sexual boundaries. The cross forgives and it guides us towards God's original plan of romance, intimacy, and relationships. Let me say it again. This prostitute, this great harlot, whose spirit has been in the world since Genesis, what she does is she says, hey, you're going to find great joy in sexual freedom. And she can sell that to church kids. She can sell it to church grown-ups. And she can sell it to people who have never heard of the name of Jesus. But her ways always end in death and destruction. Her, her, her bargain of absolute freedom results in death and destruction. Jesus, on the other hand, he sets us free by giving us sexual boundaries. And in him, in the cross, we have the forgiveness of the sins when we cross those sexual boundaries into territory that we weren't supposed to go to. But not only do we have forgiveness... We have grace, and that grace is the power to walk in the confines that God has asked us to walk in when it comes to sexual liberties. And so often, we just focus on, on the forgiveness that we get from Jesus, and we don't focus on the grace that he gives us. The grace that God gives us is strength. It's like spiritual spinach. He gives the ability to every Christian to walk in sexual integrity, to date in it, to think in it, to live in it, to model it. And when we do that, we understand God's original plans of romance, intimacy, and relationships. And they're right and they're good. And what does that sound like? That sounds like Adam and Eve before there was sin in the garden. Before there was sin, they were naked and not ashamed. So when God gives us his boundaries, he's taking us back to a world where we can be with another person of the opposite gender and we can be naked and not ashamed. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. We understand relationships and intimacy. We understand friendships. We understand all of it. But when we follow the lies of this woman, what happens when she promises, do whatever you want? We end up killing ourselves. And if you're a Christian, you end up making a mockery of the cross, and one has to raise the question ultimately, are they really a Christian if they can't get this thing under control? And that's about as clear and bold as I know how to say it. We've been, uh, I'll show you a painting, by the way. There's some old paintings of this woman. I don't know why that one, she's not very pretty there. Uh, but when John sees her in the next verse, John says, when I saw her, I marveled. And if you look up the word marveled, when John saw the harlot sitting on the antichrist, the beast, he was kind of like breathless. 
I think John was like, oh, I see why people could like fall for her. She's, she's the opposite of what Peter tells women they're supposed to be like in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, don't let your outward adorning be that of braided hair and gold, but let it be the, on, the, from, on the inward, let the, let the gentle and peaceable spirit of Christ dwell in you and shine out. Like she's the total opposite. She's like on the outside supposed to be, not according to this painting, but supposed to be like a smoke show. And on the inside, she's just like fragile and, and falling apart. And she has this, uh, she wears scarlet and purple, not in this painting though, um, artistic liberty. By the way, that's John, little John being held by an angel. If you're wondering like, like what's happening, that's, uh, that's John. John's like, John's, the angel's like, let me carry you, little John. <laughs> Let's go into the wilderness. Um, he's got a... He's got a real good grasp on John there, if you can see that. He's, he's not sure why this is a famous painting. Um, but anyway, this angel is, is taking John. I don't know if somebody hears this on the podcast, they're going to be like, what were they looking at? Um, so this, this angel takes John out into the wilderness. He sees this woman seated on a beast. She's on many waters, and he explains what all this means, and I'll try to explain it pretty quick. But what we see here is that this woman, I'll just walk through it really quick. This woman, the great prostitute, is seated on many waters, and later in the chapter they explain, the, the angel explains that many waters underneath this, this, this monster that she's sitting on, this beast, it represents all the nations. Now, if you think about how water works, how it evaporates and goes up and then comes back down, and it can spread all over the world, give it enough time. So she sits on many waters, meaning that every nation, there is no nation that is exempt from her allure. And not only is there no nation that's not exempt, but it says that Kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And so these kings of the earth, it's permeated. Once it, once it permeates the leadership, everybody gets permission. And so it's an undercurrent, and then it becomes a norm, and then it becomes a law, and then it becomes what everybody ought to do. And you get like, you get cultural shaming if you see things different than the way this harlot is trying to set the world up. And you think, why is, why is sex such a big deal? It's, it's fascinating to me. I've thought about this question for days now. Why, why would sex be the number one tool that Satan would use? And it really seems like it is. You think about all the things that have happened. Rape, lobbying of laws, Gender wars, label wars, rebranding of bathrooms, questions of procreation, parenthood, murders. This one little thing that's supposed to be shared between two people has literally disrupted the globe. It's fascinating that this is one of, one of Satan's main tools. And you're like, does he have other tools? Look, as somebody once said, if the fish are biting, don't change the bait. The fish have been biting for as long as people have been around. Why does he need to change the bait? 
It's fascinating. And, and it's only, her, her appeal has only increased. It says that the dwellers on earth have become drunk with what she's selling. What happens when you become drunk? I won't ask for any testimonies, but what happens when you become drunk? You can't see things right. You, get, you, you can't make great decisions. And this is a perpetual state of drunkenness. So when people start into a lifestyle of this sexual deviance, it's a perpetual state of drunkenness. It affects the way you see everything. And so the folks have, have had this incredible experience of, man, I've tasted the forbidden fruit. Now every part of my life is, is changed because of this sexual deviance. I've stepped out of, out of God's plan. And what happens? Well, um, I'm, I've been reading this book. Heather, Heather told me about um, Levi Lusco's book, Swipe Right. He's, um, he's a tattooed pastor out in Montana. And, um, and so he, he has this book called Swipe Right. And he says, he quotes a guy in there uh, who says that there were two things in recent history that have changed sex and sexuality that have propelled it to places it never was before. And according to this, it's only going to be propelled more, according to chapter 17. But the two things were, one, the agricultural uh, revolution. People could have a wife in town and a wife in the country. And they could have other people along the way. The second thing that has catapulted the sexual revolution was the invention of the internet. You think about the world when I was 12, if I wanted to see somebody naked, I had to know somebody whose dad had a Playboy under their bed. Like, that was the only way I could see somebody naked. Now, seven out of ten men view porn regularly. Three or four, the numbers aren't quite certain, three or four out of ten women view pornography regularly. I mean, I didn't have access to that. But some of you have had access to it since you were eight or nine. This woman, her, she's done a great job. She's done a great job of making the dwellers of the earth drunk. She, she's got these incredible consequences, but she's dressed like a queen. Satan's no fool. He's not going to send the harlot out dressed like someone that you're like, I don't want that. And sin always comes to us like that. It always comes to us like this woman. It comes to us looking good. I mean, like, the people in commercials for, for vicey things, you know, like, like things you drink or you smoke or whatever, like, they're having, like, a great time. Nobody's going to have, like, a, a commercial that that sells something you could get addicted to for the rest of your life and like potentially ruin your life and be like, and here's some people that are strung out. Here's an alcoholic. Buy our beer. Like that's not going to happen, right? Like they're going to be like, oh, we're at the beach and we're playing volleyball and we're like popping tops and drinking and it's awesome. And I'm like, beer's great. They're not going to show the other side of it and she's not either. And so she comes with purple and scarlet. She's adorned with gold and jewels. And, and these Christians 
looks so boring compared to her. One person the rest of your life, you have the same cereal every day too? Like, do you only shop at the same store? Are you always going to drive the same car? We're sold this bill of sale that's like, yeah, maybe somebody is holding out on me. But her end is destruction. And he notices, John notices something about her. That she's handing out this wine of sexual immorality, but she's got her own cup. And in her cup, the thing that keeps her drunk is when she wrecks a Christian. Her cup, it says, the woman was drunk, verse 6. She's drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This woman harlot has a special target on you and on me. She wants to stay drunk. And the way she stays drunk is when she wrecks us. She drank and drank and drank when that 400-page report came out. Drank and drank and drank when people read the names of their pastors who had committed these deeds and walked away from church forever. She drinks and drinks and drinks on our blood. There's a hundred million people on dating apps. Half of those are on Tinder. So 50, whatever, half of a hundred million is, 50, hundred million? What is that? I don't know. Whatever that number is. I'm, I'm, I'm a math guy. Whatever that number is. You've got that many folks that are one click away from a hookup tonight. Look, you can marvel at this woman like John did, but don't linger too long. Or she'll invite you in, and you will say yes. The rest of this, Revelation 17, 4 through 10, it shows us that sexual deviance ruins a person. Sexual sin cannibalizes its own. Sexual sin is disorienting. If, um, if there's any pilots in the room, I don't know if you've ever heard of this thing, the rest of us called black hole vertigo. Um, Lusco used it in his book. It's a great illustration. My brother told me about it. And one time I flew a plane. I just barely flew it. Um, I just sat in the, in, the, in the seat next to the pilot. And he was like, go for it. And next thing you knew, I was like climbing towards the sun. But it felt like I was completely level. There's this thing called black hole vertigo where you can feel like I am in complete control. And not realize because you're not trusting your instruments that you're actually in a death spiral headed to the earth. And it happens all the time in plane crashes where they wonder how did they crash and it's because they didn't trust their instruments. And what are our instruments? Well, our main instrument is right here. Along with the Holy Spirit and his conviction. So let me just give you a few quick takeaways and then we'll call it a night. The idea here is, how do we go back to the garden? How do we go back to that sexual wholeness where people can be naked and not ashamed? 
because there's no carry-ons allowed going back. One, we need to understand that forgiveness meets grace. Jesus saves, and that's absolutely true. But not only does he save, he gives us grace. And when he gives us grace, we walk in that and we can obey his commands. So many folks are like, they just focus on the forgiveness. They don't focus on the power that the Lord gives you through his spirit to walk in his ways. Accountability versus camaraderie. Our accountability groups need to be like a bunch of surgeons walking around looking for something to cut out of each other. You ever been to the dermatologist and they were like, hmm, I'm going to cut that one, and then I'm going to cut that one, and you're like, I'll come back next week. And if you haven't been there, give it a couple of more years. You'll go and they'll be like, they're just like sharpening their knife, waiting for you to walk in. And they're like, we're going to cut some things. I'm like, are you sure we need to cut that one? They're like, we might. Let's go ahead and do it. You're like, perfect. Our accountability groups don't need to be camaraderie. So many groups are something like this, like, oh, man, I, I, uh, I did something with my girlfriend that I shouldn't have done. Yeah, me too. Well, I looked at some stuff I shouldn't have looked at. Yeah, me too. All right, well, hey, meet back next week. We're not doing great. But we told each other. People do that at the bar. That's not accountability. That's just talking. That's camaraderie. We're commiserating. We need accountability. I think you need to slow the swipes. I had more than one phone call of... You won't believe what happened to me last night. Let me tell you what I did. And it starts with like I opened the app and I found the person and then we were together and you know the rest of the story. Slow the swipes. This old expression that's a great one, halts. I added the S to it. It was just halt, but I wanted S on the end, so I added S. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or sad. If you were hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or sad and you were on a dating app, put that up turn on Goonies and like eat something and just watch it. Like find Shrek, do whatever, do something, something where you're like, you cut me real deep, Shrek. Like you just, just watch that and just be happy for a little while. Fall asleep early, like put the phone down. Slow the swipes. I think remembering Jesus's return. I did a wedding not long ago and this lady, um, and this lady minister at this church, um, she, she said, oh, you're going to teach on Revelation? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, oh, my mom used to say to me on Friday night, don't do anything you wouldn't want Jesus to come back and find you doing. She was like, I prayed he'd come back the next week. Um, and so it's very important to remember, though, he will come back, and he's going to come back like a thief in the night. It's not, not bad to remember, like, what if he comes back when I'm on this date? What if he comes back when I start to look at this thing? What if he comes back when I start to do this thing? What, you don't want Jesus to come back with your pants down. Like you don't. That's not good. And remember, we're all marked with either the mark of the beast or the mark of the lamb. We need to live. If we say we're marked with the lamb, we need to live like we're marked with the lamb. I think we need to understand this idea of asking forgiveness. And then respecting people's boundaries once we ask that forgiveness. 
You know why, Heather and I were talking about this. You know why some of you can't respect somebody's boundaries? You're like, yeah, they found out I did this, or they were, I was looking at this, or I like, yes, I did message that girl, and I shouldn't have, or I did message that guy, but like, we ought to still, they ought to still like, take me back or give me another chance. It's because you're so used to manipulating things on your phone or on your computer, you feel like you can manipulate a real person too. The more you manipulate who you like and when you talk to them and how you meet them and who you don't like, the more it translates poorly into regular relationships and you start thinking, well, those people did what I wanted. Why can't this person do what I want? Fasting and prayer and confession, the last two. Jesus cast out a demon in Mark chapter 9. And the, the disciples said, why can't we cast that demon out? And Jesus said, some things only come out with prayer and fasting. Sometimes the only way to be free of this harlot is to get real serious with a time of prayer and fasting. And to have some godly people who won't just tell you yes in your life that you can use confession 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other that you might be healed. I want you to know this. Total sexual freedom, the way God intended it, is possible. Salvation means forgiveness, and it also means grace to be able to walk in obedience to Jesus. The rest of the world may be falling to this woman, but we don't have to. We all bear one of two marks. Not which mark do you profess, but which mark does your life proclaim? Let me pray for us. Father, I lift up this group tonight, Lord. It's a, heavy, it's a heavy night, a heavy message, Lord. There's a lot going on in the world. But Father, I ask that as we close in worship tonight, that people's hearts would be pierced with gratefulness for the cross, but also a longing for the grace to walk back in the ways of the garden, the ways in which we'll walk when there's a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of the Lamb of Jesus. We also thank you for his grace. May our lives look different than those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.